0: So, um, this evening, as you can see, we're moving into a new series. Um, Some of you guys were really intrigued about the character of David, who became highlighted to us in our series on the Psalms. And so, we end a few weeks looking at the character of David, and we want to see how some of his life experience can influence some of us. Um, And so, we'll, we'll work our way through some of the the popular stories that all of us know um, about David, and we'll see what we, can, what we can glean from that. And so this evening we're going to look at the first one, an introduction, um, but let me also just say about next week. Um, next week, um, we're actually going to take, so we're going to do this evening, next week we'll do something completely different, and then we'll continue the week after that. So next week, we're going to have um, a group called EMI with us, Um, and they are um, engineers who work with churches, missionary organizations, parachurch organizations, and they talk about and work with churches about their buildings and their structures and how they can best suit the mission of that particular church. So they're going to be meeting with us next week um, and we're going to have some of our leadership here with us and it's going to be a very interactive evening. Um, so that's going to be happening next week. Um, I encourage you to come kind of on time if you can um, because we're going to have guests. Um, so that's what we'll be doing next week and then we'll continue the following week with our series. Now as we found out in our, in our series on the Psalms, Um, David is a prominent figure, prominent writer as well, um, of many of the Psalms we have looked at over the past while. And he was a prominent person in the society in his own lifetime, and he actually still is quite a prominent figure um, even today. And um, I find it interesting that God has, in his sovereignly decided to record David's life experiences and to use them to help um, shape the responses to the life experiences of believers and followers of Yahweh throughout history. Um, and to me, when I think about it like that, um, there's a sense in which David's life is kind of like the way that Paul described it, his life has been poured out like a drink offering. And so we get to see all the insides, um, some ugly and some attractive parts of his life. Um, and so I think even if we, if we ask those people who aren't believers, who, who deny Christianity, who deny Jesus, um, if we ask them about David, um, then they would probably recognize him as the one who defeated a giant with a slingshot Um, and it seems like most people know that story in fact um, the famous story of David and Goliath has become so prolific in literature and art and culture that it's become a very common image for describing other stories about underdogs Um, In fact, as I'm watching the the Rugby World Cup, many of the teams are described that way in a David versus um, a Goliath type scenario where there's this great, big, um, strong team versus a team that is is less so. So David, a very interesting character, um, he lived around the year 1000 BC, that's 1000 years before Jesus. So that's about 3,000 years ago. Um, he was born in Bethlehem, um, which is a small city in the country of Israel. A lot of turmoil happening there today. Um, as we, as um, Adrian uh, spoke about earlier on, um, Israel has declared war with Hamas. And yesterday it was an, it was a, a holiday in Israel. And because there was the celebration going on, Um, It was uh, Hamas, a moment of advantage, and so they launched thousands of rockets um, into Israel. Bethlehem is not too far from there. David was an Israelite from the tribe of Judah, and he grew up under the reign of Israel's first king, their very first king, named Saul. And as we read the story of David throughout Scripture, as the story unfolds, we see that um, when David was 30 years old, he himself became Israel's second king. And he reigned for a little more than seven years over part of the country, and then another 33 years over the rest of it, over the rest of the Israelites as well. And what we'll do over the next few weeks is we'll we'll take a look at the character of David by reading and unpacking some of those most prominent stories that weave his life together. And today we'll look at how it all started for him. And we'll look at how God chose him from among many other candidates who looked like they were better suited. And we'll notice that we don't learn directly from David's actions in the story, but rather indirectly with him as the pivotal character in the whole story. Now, in the story we're about to read, um, if you've got your Bibles, First Samuel 16, um, it's believed that David was around 15 years old. Nobody is 15 years old, eh? We are way, oh, there's a 15 year old. (laughs) There's another 15 year old. So, David was around 15 years old when Samuel came and anointed him king in the midst of his brothers. Now, how much time passed between the time when David was anointed and the time that he actually killed Goliath the giant? Um, isn't clear to us, but it is believed that somewhere between the time when he was 15 years old and 20, um, that was where his father sent him to go um, to the battle to check on his brothers. And so we're going to read from 1 Samuel chapter 16, 16 verses 1 to 13. Let me just remind you there for those of you who happen to have forgotten where you find that okay this is what it sounds like the lord said to samuel how long will you mourn for saul since i have rejected him as king over israel fill your horn with oil and be on your way i am sending you to jesse of bethlehem i have chosen one of his sons to be king but samuel said how can i go If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. We're going to stop there. The story does continue. The second half of that chapter then starts to describe, as you can see there, David's um, relationship that then starts to grow with Saul um, and how that um, actually, then moves into the next phase of, of of David's journey. Okay, so the first that we that we encounter the young man David in the Bible is here. It's when the prophet Samuel comes to Jesse's house and is looking for the next king of Israel. And the context of this part of the story is that. Um, King Saul had been rejected by God because of the way he had um, <clears throat> behaved himself, to put it lightly, even though he was still on the throne. Um, and God said in 1 Samuel 13 that he would remove the kingdom from, from Saul and give it to a man after his own heart, in 1 Samuel 13:13 13, 13 and 14. And that man after his own heart was David. Now what we notice is that David's story begins by overlapping with the downfall and the ending of Saul's story. Saul being the first king of Israel. And we notice here at the start in the first two verses, if you go back there in your Bible, um, that this task that was given to Samuel was also in some way a challenge for Samuel. God asked Samuel how long he would grieve over Saul. And so it seems that in some ways, um, Samuel still had a kind of attachment to Saul. um, Despite the fact that Samuel actually didn't trust Saul as we see there, um, and was kind of scared of who who he was because of the authority that he carried. And so Samuel, as we know, he had anointed Saul. Um, He played a very prominent role in the life of Saul as king. Um, And in the same way that he would now have to anoint David and also play a very prominent guiding role in David's life, who would become Saul's replacement. And so it seems like Yahweh was saying here in this moment to Samuel, Samuel, it's time for you to move on, um, because my plans are not complete. Um, And so as we see there in in those verses, he fills his horn with oil and he goes. And then God says to Samuel there in verse 1, I have chosen, I have provided for myself a king amongst Jesse's sons. Now, what are, the, what are in, the, in the translations that you guys have there, what are some of the words used there um, for that word chosen or provided? Do you all have those two words or are there any others? I was this one, that version that we read was the NIV, by the way. Do they all use chosen or provided? You've got provided. You guys also? <laughs> okay. So, in most translations, it would be provided or chosen. Now, that word chosen or provided in other translations is actually the key word in, in all of those verses in this text. And it forms the foundational idea that is being conveyed here to us um, in this text. Now the Hebrew word for for that word, chosen or provided, is the word raah, and raah is a word that literally means to see. When we when we when we translate it back into English, um, we lose some of the. The depth of meaning from the Hebrew there in the English and so chosen or provided kind of as to do the job but see as we'll see actually has a little bit more depth to it now this word ra'ah um, just like in the English Hebrew uses to, to see like we would use it in the sense um, I have seen to it that the person will be ready when you get there um, so the way the Hebrew describes it, it gives the sense that provision has been made. It's more than just the act of seeing with your eyes. Um, it includes an action as well, ra'ah. And this word ra'ah provides for us the key to this story as it relates to David. It signals that God has seen the people's need, even before they were aware of it. And so as God had done in the past, God was again here kind of venturing out ahead of his people, authoring their story before their story had even started unfolding. And so Samuel has to trust Yahweh's eyes here. He has to trust Yahweh in how he sees. Now, I think we all wrestle with God's guidance when it comes to this idea, you know? And God's direction is usually not as visible in the moment as it is in hindsight. We can always see better what he was doing after the fact, but when we are actually in the thing, in the middle of it, um, then it's not so easy to see in the way that he sees. We may not sense what God is doing in our midst or how he is leading us. And so there's a lot of faith that needs to be engaged in the moment. And so even the great prophet Samuel didn't know what God was doing. And Samuel was called a seer, as I mentioned, And this story, as with so much of the Old Testament, affirms again God's providence, his wisdom, his foresight, and how those things are able to operate beyond the spectrum in which our sight operates. But even so, we remain within God's view. And so we see Samuel here in the next step. He's expressing his uncertainty. Um, of Yahweh's instruction by presenting the obstacles. He says, How can I go if Saul hears about it? He will kill me. Or like Jordan was saying earlier, How can I go if I feel so tired? Or how can I do what you are asking me to do if X, Y, Z? The same sense there. And in response, Yahweh then suggests, as we saw in the story, He suggests what we call today a ruse. Um, He suggests an action that is intended to deceive someone so as to achieve an outcome, like a, a, a trick, a ruse. He says to go and say that he had come to sacrifice to the Lord. Does that sound dishonest? He's just wondering the way God's, God says there to him, okay, if he's going to do that, I want you to say this and do this. Does that sound dishonest to anybody? When I, when I first read through that, I thought, yo, that kind of sounds dishonest, God. <laughs> I mean, that's like you're trying to trick someone here, man. Um, but then I, I did a little bit more reading into it. And apparently in the Hebrew mind of that time, this was actually seen as, um, as counter-deception, um, because it, in those times it was an accepted form of response um, to deceive a deceiver with deception, kind of like fighting fire with fire. So that was accepted in those times. And so Saul had become deceptive. Yet become a king who could not be trusted. And so it was a case of kind of like fighting fire with fire, which was accepted in the Hebrew mind back then. And so God was using a man to use the ways of men to bring about his will in the way that he does in so many other instances as well. And so Samuel goes and Samuel does what Yahweh says. Then in verse 6, it says, As Samuel arrived, he sees um, Jesse's eldest son, David's eldest brother, passing before Samuel, just walking past him. And immediately when he saw the eldest brother, he said, Surely, this is the guy. He said, Yeah, that must be the one. And so Samuel made this immediate conclusion Based on what he saw with his eyes. But then Yahweh says in verse 7 He says, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that word ra'ah is used there again to describe seeing. And so Yahweh was saying here, don't let those things that you just saw, his good looks, his height, don't let those things be the deciding factor. Don't allow those things to be the points, the only points of your consideration for the person that I will choose. This Um, David's eldest brother Eliab, he looks impressive, he's tall, he looks able-bodied, he looks capable, but that's not what I'm looking for. Now what's interesting is that those words were the same words that were used to describe Saul who had now fallen out of favor with God. In 1 Samuel 9, in verse 2, when it describes Saul, it says, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So there is a comparison being drawn here between Saul and Eliab, who's David's oldest brother. And they both seem to have the same qualities, um, if you see with your own eyes, but they are both rejected by Yahweh, and David is chosen over both of them. And so in this moment again, there is highlighted just the value that is ascribed to looks, how people look and how much value we ascribe to that. Why do you think that is? I mean, bring it back to where we are now here, um, why do you think we, to us also, um, the image, the form, how we look um, is held in as high esteem as it is? Um, I think it it has a lot to do with how we are socialized, taking all of those things into account, and how that shapes our worldview. Um, Biblically speaking, in verse 7, if we go back to the story there, where it says God looks at the heart, he doesn't look at looks. I think what God was doing there was he was pointing the outworking of the essence of what, something of what he communicated in the Ten Commandments. In, in particular, the commandment when he says you will make no given image that you bow down and worship. That says in Exodus 3 and verse 4. Let me try and explain that. I believe that um, what Yahweh was busy doing here in David's story, when he, when he put that line in there about looking at what's at the heart rather than what we look at. Um, I think he's, he was communicating something in there, and he's still busy communicating it, and he's changing the worldview that we have when it comes to what we believe really is of importance. And Yahweh was at work there in the story of David with those people and having it recorded so that we can reflect on it again, again. He was at work reinforcing in the hearts and the minds of his people what he wants and what he wanted them to value. And so that still leaves us with why is the physical image so important. The fact of the matter is that as, I mean, as we've just acknowledged, we judge people by how they look. I don't know if we can get away from that. We judge people by how they, how they look. And so looks appear to be very important to us in our Western society and we see that in the media that we interact with. We see that on Instagram. Um, We see that in Facebook. We see that in TikTok. We see that on profile pictures. Um, We see how advertising and marketing works. This is something that we deeply value. Now, when we engage in society through that particular lens, we assign value to people based on how they look compared to us. And what this means is that we, if we take that into account, then um, we realize that we have a worldview that is iconic. And the, the dictionary defines an iconic image as um, an image or a thing that is important or impressive because it seems to be a symbol of something as we've expressed now. It communicates something. Now here's an example. If you traveled, if we're talking about worldviews, if you travel to Europe and those are, those are um, pieces from Europe, if you travel to Europe And there are other places in the West too, but we'll we'll consider Europe. And if you drove around the cities in Europe and you'd visit their museums like Lindsay loves to do and their places of cultural importance, then you would find a fair amount of sculptures, of statues, of artwork. Now, throughout European history, stone statues and others have been erected to commemorate significant historical events. Um, It records battles and also the value that individuals have made to their society. And these statues served as memorials um, to leaders, to national icons, and they also preserve their memory and it records for them that part of their history. Now, the reason for this approach in recording history and commemorating important people and events is that in Western thought, you are what you look like. In Western thought, you are what you look like. And so, if you want to teach people values in the West you show them images, you show form, you show figure, you show pictures and statues and those kinds of things. And so we find these wonderful statues that tell you the, of the mythology of Greece, the history of nations. It tells us of battles fought, of lands and peoples who have been conquered, of key figures who accomplished much for the advancement of their own empire. And here's the thing, you know, we can be shown European history by showing battle scenes, mosaics, sculptures, French um, art, and all of them use form to communicate. And so all of those things, that way of recording history and commemorating those important things, they all require us to look at, to see it, and to build an understanding based on how things look. And so this has become something that has been ingrained in us, in how we choose to interact within society and how we value particular things. Now leave Europe behind and go into the Middle East and what you will find there is a nation of people that has allowed its culture to be influenced by religion in an exponential way. So when you move around Israel, you won't find a single statue of Moses. Think about that. Pastor Andrew was there. You won't find sculptures of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. You won't find those in their town squares. You won't find sculptures or artwork like you would in the European depiction recording Great battle scenes of how the Israelites conquered Canaanite nations—you won't find that there, and we won't find that there because Middle Eastern people are an iconic. So, icon means image, an iconic means against image. Now, for an an iconic person, they can't have images around. They can't have things that are formed and shaped to inform them in a particular way. But for an iconic person, they tell their whole life story through images. Now, this is not to say that um, looks so bad or they should be disregarded. An entire marketing industry should be dumped. It's not saying that. It is an expression of different worldviews. And they have their place. But as it relates to what God is saying here in relation to his commandment is watch out for what it is that you centralize in your life. Watch out for where that could lead you. And so certain things can very easily become idols in our lives and we need to watch out for that. And so out of that... Valuing someone in the, the context of the story here and Samuel's engagement with David's brothers is watch out for looking at looks alone because that could lead you down a path, would lead you away from what God really is seeing. Now, in this idea of seeing as God sees. This story of how David is chosen or selected through how God sees is also kind of, in a way, it's a it's a hyperlink back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. And that word that gets used there, ra'ah, to see, is also the word that is used to describe the scene in the garden. In Genesis 3, 6, it says... When the woman saw when she ra'ad that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. It looked good with the eye. And we know how that story ended. And so as we kind of draw things to a conclusion In David's story, all of the sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel, and they are paraded there past him, but none of them are the one that had been chosen by Yahweh until David is brought. And so David, the shepherd boy, is then anointed as the one who Yahweh had seen to being the one who he would work through. And Samuel. And as I think about this story, I'm reminded about the other stories in Scripture of how God chooses the ordinary, unexpected people to become the ones that He uses mightily. I'm reminded of people like Abraham, who was also a shepherd, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all of them were people in the background. In fact, They were all um, younger sons who were elevated over the other siblings to do great tasks for God. And I think the dimensions of this particular story that we are looking as we draw from David's life here, it actually rings loudly in our cultural context. Because I think we rely almost, at least we we, we rely very heavily on our sight. Um, and oftentimes it proves to be unworthy. And I think also judging people based only on how they look is something that we need to watch out for, particularly when I think about our own country, our own nation. Um, judging people based on what they look like has brought our own country to its knees. Assigning value to people based on the color of their skin has caused detriment to generations of South Africans. And it still continues in some spaces. And so when we think about the story of David and how we need to value, how we need to see how God sees there's a, the, or actually far-reaching repercussions to the story when we try to see behind what is being communicated to us here. And so we want to be able to say that while we see who you are to anyone who comes in here, and we honor the goodness of God's design in the way you are, we do not only look at the outward appearance, but we also look at the heart. And, and so as we continue to um, go through David's story, I pray that we will see um, deeper, that he will draw us closer and take us deeper. Um, and as we will see with David, God sees who we are, He knows who we are and all of our shortcomings, but he still calls us. And he uses us to bring about his will in spaces that he puts us in.